Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about how the all-important small and medium-sized business community are faring. Also, we answer why we have been adding exposure to stocks and shares to our funds and portfolios this week, with Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Ian Workman, a Managing Director in Barclays Business Bank, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Hello, thank you for joining Word on the Street. It's been another week of extremes in markets. Um, We saw on Tuesday the biggest one-day rise in the Dow, which is one of the major US stock indices, Um, the biggest rise that we've seen since the 1930s. And this happened on the same day as economic data really started to bite, um, to really sort of showcase um, how the world economy is being affected by the kind of um, hard stop that we've never seen before, at least certainly not in living memory. I guess these two points together go some way to illustrate the point that that Will and the team are, are perennially making, which is capital markets, particularly stocks and shares, tend to be anticipatory assets. The time to sell is when everything looks wonderful. Um, the time to buy is when everything looks awful. Um, and that obviously is, is, is very hard and it's contrary to human nature. Anyway, today we're lucky enough to get some special insights from a guest, um, Ian Workman, who's one of the bosses of our business bank. Um, Ian, thanks so much for joining us. Um, it's, it's really good to have you on board and to hear a little bit about um, what you're seeing um, at, at the coal phase. But just to start off, can you just share with, with me and the listeners, what, what is it that you and the team do and, and what parts of the UK economy is the Business Bank serving? Yeah, thanks, Nikki, and uh, thanks for inviting me on uh, today. So along with Chris Forrest, uh, we're responsible for the uh, 1,500 relationship managers that we have across the UK that look after our SME business. And for us, that's... Uh, uh, turnover up to around six and a half million pounds, uh, and that's right across the UK. A uh, little-known fact that you know about ninety-five percent of employers in the in the UK are actually SMEs. So really, really, those businesses are the the backbone of the uh, the British economy, uh, and it's something I've been working with for probably over twenty years now. Um, and uh, it's really interesting times, and uh, I haven't seen anything like this before, Nikki. And so, from where you sit, you really are uniquely positioned to give us a bit of a sense of what is going on in, in some of the sectors of the economy. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you're hearing from the coal face? Absolutely. I think, look, the first thing is just that uncertainties out there. If you think about it, you know, not more than a week ago, uh, SMEs across the country were trading normally. Uh, we had some interesting figures showing the positive, the Boris bounce in January. You know, SMEs are actually looking forward to 2020. Um, and then it all came to a grinding stop. Uh, you know, when businesses were ordered to close. And and a lot of SMEs, in effect, have absolutely stopped trading. Uh, And that's a big worry for them because they're worried about, um, you know, when are they going to start trading again? How are they going to pay that rent? Um, How are they going to keep those employees that have invested a lot of money and time in training? Um, And also losing customers, those really important customers. How can they ensure that when they really start up again now when this is all over, um, where are those customers that are going to come back to them and how do they protect that? So a lot, a lot of uncertainty. And when you think about it, for a lot of SMEs, this, you know, this could be their baby. It could have been that they started the business in the back room uh, and it's a very micro enterprise. Or it could be a family business that you've inherited through grandparents. It's been going for a long time 
And actually, this uncertainty is a big responsibility you've got on your shoulders to think about exactly how am I going to trade myself out of this and what is what is the future going to look like for the SME in the UK going forward? So, Ian, I guess you and your team must be in fairly regular communication with, with the government and government agencies um, who, who we've seen have been pretty proactive um, in, in recent days. What new services are, are you um, offering in the context of the government's recent policy changes? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, Nikki. I think, you know, seeing that Chancellor stood up very early on the crisis addressing some of the issues that the um, SMEs are facing shows how much importance there is um, from the government's point of view in terms of SMEs across the UK. So we've got a couple of things that they've announced. Um, you've clearly got the 80% uh, guarantee for wages. Um, you've got the, the rate rebate. Um, you've got some small grants for industries such as hospitality and leisure. And then finally, you've got the Coronavirus Interruption Business Loan Scheme, or SIBLS, um, that the Treasury and the banks collectively have worked on and launched on Monday this week. And that's a really important measure in terms of getting cash out to businesses to support through this difficult period. Because if you think about what I said earlier, businesses stopped trading. They haven't got any cash coming in, but they still need to pay those, those business rates, or those business um, expenditures such as electric, gas, all the normal bills that you'd expect, but without any money coming in. So the Sybil's loans there to help businesses get through this crisis, get some cash to them. The great thing about it, it's interest-free and fee-free for the first 12 months. And it really is there for those businesses that couldn't ordinarily re realise cash and raise finance. It's a way of actually getting that money into their business when they need it most today. Um, and it's a really, really important step um, to support the SME community across the UK. Great. And are there any other things that you and the team are doing to support UK businesses at the moment? Yeah, sure. I think the key thing for us is our, our 1,500 managers across the UK. They're, they're experts in, in, in looking after businesses. Um, we've had to do that a bit differently, being a bit agile. Clearly, normally we'd be out pounding the streets now and going out there seeing businesses. We can't do that. So we're trying to respond as much as we can by phone. I think the big one is that we're continually updating our, our website. So if you go to um, the Barclays Business Banking homepage, you'll see lots of relevant information there and signposting you around what support's there for businesses during this period. And I would recommend you um, and lots of businesses having a look at that to see what help and advice is out there. Um, because there is so much there um, to support SMEs in the current, current, current crisis. So, Will, the UK economy is obviously experiencing very similar headwinds to the rest of the world, or, or certainly the Northern Hemisphere at the moment. I heard you talking about increasingly gloomy economic forecasts on Monday's Word on the Street. How bad can you see this getting in the short term? Yeah, Nikki, um, I think, as Ian alluded to um, on his patch, you know, it pretty un unambiguously bad in the short term. Uh, so, you know, looking forward to the second quarter, you know, credible forecasters are expecting the worst quarterly decline in the US economy on record, literally multiples of the previous worst quarter back in uh, the late 60s, 1958. Um, unemployment could double uh, and some. Uh, in a matter of months um, in the US economy uh, and, uh, you know, rise sharply elsewhere. Um, and it's um, it's these kinds of kind of really unprecedented hard stops, self-imposed hard stops that the data is already starting to describe around the world, UK included. So opentable.com now shows 100% decline in reservations in most cities, which won't change anytime soon. Um, 
And these kinds of high frequency uh, uh, stops in high frequency data will increasingly ricochet into things like unemployment. Like I said, so you're already seeing in the U.S. Um, with yesterday's surge in uh, in uh, unemployment claims. So, Will, I've heard you talking about this being different from a normal imbalance correcting downturn, like the last one, say. But but why is that? Surely, in both cases, there's permanent damage done, jobs that will be hard to regain businesses that you can't unbankrupt. Yeah, I mean, there are several important things to think about here. But um, one thing is that the hangover should not be as economically debilitating. If you compare it to the last recession, for instance, um, the coronavirus really came out of nowhere, um, but will eventually diminish as infections peak, uh, immunity across the populations rises, uh, and a vaccine is eventually developed, uh, you know, 12 to 18 months time. Uh, maybe treatment comes a bit sooner. We shall see. There's, there is some cause for guarded optimism here. Now, in contrast, the last recession was the culmination of more than a decade of built-up imbalances, uh, and that left a big debt overhang uh, on uh, consumers' balance sheets, among other things, um, and a need for delevering and, and huge amounts of slack in the global economy to digest. Uh, think of all those unwanted vacant homes in the US, for starters. Now, the world economy strolled into this punch uh, in much less questionable health. Uh, and with the, health, uh, with the help of um, policymakers, should bounce back a bit quicker too. That's not to say it's going to be easy. Uh, you know, you allude there to unemployment. That tends to go up quicker than it comes down. Um, businesses, some businesses will not return. But the other point, I think, which is quite interesting, surrounds the idea of moral hazard. Um, crisis response in past episodes has sometimes been hindered um, by the idea that it's someone else's fault. Um, so think the Greek debt crisis uh, and indeed many of the impediments to further convincing integration in the euro area. Now, this time, um, you have what is generally described as an exogenous shock. It's not Italy's fault, is it? Nobody's fault, really. Uh, this seems to be allowing some previously impossible to discuss measures to be tabled. Uh, the ECB has already gone a very long way here, but there's some interesting potential developments coming on the fiscal side, um, too. So this would be the thing that you and the team have been talking about for a long time now, Europe's Alexander Hamilton moment. Yes. Well, um, for those who haven't seen the musical uh, or heard us bang on about uh, Hamilton, um, Hamilton's relevance to Europe uh, and European integration before, this is really the moment in US history when you start to see the emergence of a strong federal government. Um, you have George Washington as president. Uh, the Revolutionary War is just finished. Uh, and Hamilton, Madison and Jefferson um, agree to the federal government assuming all debt and by the US states during that um, just finished war. Now, what enabled this historic compromise in 1790 was the in, was the was the imperative to redeem uh, all US states' debt incurred while fighting a common enemy. So if you fast forward to the present day in Europe, there are some common factors here, and you are seeing um, some very interesting proposals. The idea of the coronavirus uh, perpetual uh, euro bonds jointly guaranteed and supported by the ECB, for example. Now, there is still, uh, it's important to point out here, still stiff resist resistance to this idea in certain corners, as I'm sure you can imagine. But remember, as well as the existence of scenarios where permanent damage is done to the world economy and its institutions, you know, there's bottom case, um, uh, worst case scenarios, there are also scenarios at the other end of the probability distribution where unlooked for positives emerge as a result of this uh, this whole thing. Now, that all sounds, sounds fine, but what about the latest thoughts on the virus? Um, clearly, you know, no amount of government spending or, or monetary assistance can 
help if everyone is stuck in their homes, um, you know, waiting this out, um, you know, waiting for, for a vaccine. Yes, um, and you're right. All, all, all eyes remain on Italy here um, as the first major Western country to be severely hit uh, and the first one to really go for stringent, um, first major country, Western country to go for stringent lockdown measures. Um and here there are a number of metrics which are pointing to some success from their stepped up containment efforts. There's more data needed, um, definitely. And some of the data yesterday wasn't great, admittedly. Um, Asia remains stable for the most part, um, which is encouraging, uh, with most new cases imported and the developed world outside of Italy. Um, obviously entered into full containment made, uh, uh, measures a bit later. So we probably need a bit more time, a bit more data, another couple of weeks uh, before we can really assess the success of those um, measures. Now, as an aside, um, there was an interesting paper this week that caused a bit of a stir, and that was earlier in the week, discussing the results of a model that suggested that we in the UK, we in Europe, are already much further into this outbreak than recently, uh, you know, widely assumed. Um, but with most patients only really suffering mild symptoms. Now, this paper suggested that actually the UK and Europe may be closer to herd Im immunity um, than, uh, 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 than, um, than many of uh, many of us suggested. Now, this is a preliminary study. Um, it's not something to base policy on. But what this really speaks of is the urgent need for more widespread testing. The emergence of these rapid antibody tests is uh, great news in this context. It's really only when we have, we test massive chunks of the population that we'll really know where we're at um, and what we genuinely have to fear or not. So, yeah, fingers, fingers crossed for that. Um, and just turning to portfolios and our funds, what what um, what have the team been been doing? I gather we've been dialing up risk a little bit in portfolios this week. Can you just share a little bit about about why you've made those moves? I know we've we've seen some um, client queries um, suggesting that that the opposite might be what what clients might expect at times like this. You know, perhaps they would expect us to be reducing risk. Um, can you just give us a little bit of insight, well, into what's driven um, driven your decision making? Uh, it, it's a great question, Nikki, and it's um, uh, it's one that we get a lot actually. And I think the problem here is is best described by something called market efficiency. We've talked about this before on this podcast. We talked about it then in the context of the Challenger Two shuttle disaster, uh, as an example. Um, it's really the idea that market prices tend to incorporate most, if not all, of the available information out there that includes fears, hopes and facts pretty immediately. It's not always perfect. That's why there are opportunities to kind of tweak portfolios here and there and try and add to returns. But what that means is that stock markets, for instance, tend to fall in anticipation of a recession. Now, actually, if you think about market prices as an evolving assessment of the range of probable outcomes from this point in time, what you tend to find is that at times like these, where you have a rapidly deteriorating, um, almost unprecedented situation, investors can find it difficult to get confident on where the limits of that damage are. Now, in these situations, you can find that the market assigns a heavy weight uh, to what we would describe as kind of deep negative tail risks um, in the way that it looks at this kind of range of possible future outcomes. So basically, depressions, bank runs, mass defaults are assigned a higher than perhaps merited likelihood um, in such moments. 
Now, in this context, inflection points in markets are often, uh, in the first instance, really about markets being able to put limits on these tail risks. So signs that the rate of deterioration is easing can be enough uh, for investors to start de-emphasizing some of those kind of worst case scenarios. So right now, um, the combination of very a very strong policy response, we've talked about that a lot, combined with tentative signs that containment efforts um, have worked in Asia and are working more or less in Italy, uh, more data needed, like I said earlier, may be helping investors to do just this. It's very early days yet. Um, but you mentioned, uh, uh, you mentioned earlier, we are really about to see some pretty, and we are already seeing some pretty harrowing economic statistics. We'll see more of that in the next few months. However, on a six to 12 month view, we simply see a lot more parts ahead where shares, stocks, uh, whatever you want to call them, uh, and parts of the credit complex, those kind of economically sensitive parts of capital markets are a lot higher than where they languish today, um, than, uh, than, uh, than, than such scenarios where they, are, uh, where they are lower. Now, that helps explain, I hope, why we are actually using some of that cash we've been storing up in our multi-asset class funds and portfolios uh, over the last six months for exactly these sorts of moments uh, to turn the risk dial up. Uh, just a little bit. Not recklessly, mind, um, but just to get exposure to that bounce back um, we've already started to see uh, for the moment in stocks. Uh, and we think there'll be more of that in the next six to 12 months, even if it's not necessarily uh, a straight line from here. That would be highly unlikely. Ian, any final thoughts from you for, for our listeners? Anything you'd like to share? Yeah, it was really interesting listening to, to Will talk there. Um, look, you know, um, I've been around a while. My, my firm belief is British business have habitually had a great track record in facing challenges and overcoming them. And I really think with the, the larger businesses and those big corporates that Will talks about, when you combine that with the, the power and the might and just the pure willpower of SMEs, I'm really positive that we can come through this. And actually business, whether you're big or small, actually bring the British economy back uh, later this year. Brilliant. That's, that's uh, an, a great, uplifting message to end on. So thank you so much again for joining us, Ian. Um, best wishes to, to you and the team and to all your customers and clients. Um, and I'm sure we'll, we'll speak again very soon. And thank you very much to all of our listeners and subscribers for, for joining us today. Um, as we've mentioned, we're going to have these word on the streets a, a bit more regularly um, as we go through this um, coronavirus situation. Um, so thank you once again for joining us. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.